Well, this month has been a unique time for me. Um, I've attended two funerals. One, of course, being my mom. And just this Friday, John Loftus's Aunt Alma, whom he was very, very close to, who's a, almost like a mother to him. And Friday, as Marilyn and Nora went with us, and myself went to the funeral in Berryville, as sad as this day was, and as sad as it's been this past month, as I've just continually think about my mom being gone, I was encouraged during this funeral, as I heard the eulogy, for Alma. And it was, in many ways, similar to my mom's. And it was, it was, it was encouraging to be encouraged at a funeral, uh, but person after person during the memorial service spoke and shared how deeply Alma had touched their lives simply by doing this. And it was the same phrase over and over again. She pointed me to Christ. She pointed me to Christ. And it wasn't a general, she pointed me to Christ, but it was very specific, in specific ways, how Aunt Alma had pointed this person to Christ. How she had listened and then pointed this person to Christ. How one woman called her up and was just distraught. What should I do? My life is a mess. And Alma pointed her to Christ by saying, Go, take a chair, sit in your closet, close the door, and find God. She pointed them to Christ. And as a result, as each gave their eulogy and expressed their praise for who Alma was, ultimately, Everyone in the room's eyes were lifted to Christ. Because that was the effect that Alma had even in her death. That she pointed people to Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians, Paul's eulogy or his doxology, especially verses 4-14, through are intended to do the very same thing for us. To point us to Christ. To draw our gaze upwards towards the Savior. And I, and I think it does exactly that. Paul wants us to enter into his exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he begins by reviewing all of the blessings that are ours, that we have obtained because we are in Christ. And that is a, that's a crucial, important phrase throughout this book, in Christ or in Him Or in whom, speaking of Jesus. And it's important for us, I believe, to understand what does that mean exactly when Paul says in him. Because he's speaking about our union with Christ, that we are united to Jesus Christ. But what does he mean specifically in him? Because you read 11 times in this short passage, in him, in Christ. In Him. And we'll, we'll read about that this morning. Well, I think Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, easily explain what in Him means. Paul writes this in Romans. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried with Him, therefore, into baptism 
into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united to him in his death. That when we were water baptized, we identified with Christ's death. And when we came out the water, we identified with his resurrection. That we are united in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection. That's what it all means when he says that we are in him. And that is what we will see this morning. So pray with me as we begin. Father, what a, what a glorious mystery. And a mystery it is that you have taken sinful creatures and united them to God, your Son. Sinful creatures who have grieved you, who have rejected you, you have united us to your Son through His death and resurrection. And Lord, as we study more of Ephesians, more of this letter, this glorious symphony of theological truth and practical living, God, help us to embrace it and to bring application of it to our lives in such a way that it is all to the praise of your glorious grace. Help me this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're a new church. We are setting the tone and foundation for our future. And one of the ways we are doing that as as we are meeting on Sunday mornings, and we're just a month into it now. But one of the ways we're doing that is by the reading of Scripture. Because, brothers and sisters, this is where life is. This is where power is. This is where truth is. This is where wisdom resides. This is where hope is found. This is what will transform each and every one of us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, we're going to read God's Word. And at times, we'll be reading long sections of God's Word as a part of the sermon. But just enjoy it. Romans, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3. I'm going to read through what we studied last week, what we'll study this week, and what we'll study next week. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Ah. That is the Word of God. Now, this week, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. I was was thinking about how to try to come up with a a way to describe what is going to happen this morning. And and all I can say is, the word buffet came to mind. (laughs) I, I, I love... And I hate buffets. I love buffets because there's like every food imaginable. Whether it's Golden Corral, which is the low end of buffets, or you're at the Ritz-Carlton and you're at the high end of a buffet. Buffets are, are pretty cool uh, because there's like food, for all different kinds of food. And, uh, and But the reason I hate buffets is that there's all different kinds of food. And I just can't get to everything. And I can't eat everything. And there's just, it's just not possible. And I never get my money's worth at a buffet. Now I do, I have been to buffets with people who actually do get their money's worth. That is a sight to see. That is, that is not me. I I just, I don't. And, and in this passage, in verses seven through 12, it is, it's like, it's like a buffet. There's so much here. I can't get to all of it. I just, I just can't. I, 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 I'm, there's, it's just so rich. And, and yet, if I, if I parse it out the way I'd love to parse it out, we would be here until next February, still going through Ephesians. And I don't think that's a wise use of our time. So this just makes it incumbent upon you to read the Bible and to enjoy spending time with Paul and this passage and ultimately spending time with God as you read this passage. But we will be studying this verse because I think it's important for us to see more about what it means to be in him. Now, last week we we began in verse 3 through 6 speaking about the work of the Father. The work of the Father. And and this week we want to talk about the work of of the Son. And so here's, here's my main point this morning. Redeemed by Christ, we have gone from grievous sinners to forgiven saints by His immeasurable blessings. That we might praise His immeasurable grace. Let me read that again. Redeemed by Christ, we have gone from grievous sinners to forgiven saints by His immeasurable blessings. That we might praise His immeasurable grace. And last week, the the two points of our passage were the object of our praise, which is God the Father, 
and the reason for our praise, which was that we were chosen and predestined in Christ to be holy and blameless. We were chosen in Christ, predestined to be adopted as His children. Because in love, God predestined us. And, and so this, the first section we studied last week was about God the Father. The, the section we'll study this morning is about God the Son. And the section we'll study next week is about God the Holy Spirit. And what Paul has just brilliantly done here in 12 verses is given us just this wonderful explanation about who the Trinity is and what they do and how the Trinity works in our lives. Understanding our doctrine of the Trinity. It is God is one in three persons and each fully God. That's the Trinity. And that's what Paul is explaining to us here. And so this morning we're going to look at the work of Christ. Built on that foundation Paul laid in these beginning verses about the work of God the Father. That we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before mankind ever fell. That we were born again in love. In the love of God the Father who chose us to be in Christ. That we would be holy and blameless and adopted. And that's our foundation for where we step into this passage this morning. And the, the main points this morning are the same as last week. Last week, it was the object of our praise, God the Father, and the reason for our praise. Well, this morning, the object of our praise is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul's doxology was originally started first towards the Father and now towards the Son. And look at how Paul describes the blessings that we have in Christ. Starting with verse 3, God has blessed us, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what is going on here. Paul is describing all of these heavenly, heavenly spiritual blessings. He's telling us what they are. And so in verse, in verse 7, he begins, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Paul lists out his, our Redeemer. Jesus forgives our sins. Jesus has lavished us with His grace. In verse 8, Jesus gives us wisdom and insight into God's mystery. In verse 8. In verse 10, He'll unite all things back to God in Christ. In verse 11, He has given us an inheritance. That is why Jesus, God the Son, is the object of our praise. Our first point. We see the work He has done. Then there's the reason for our praise. And that's really where I want to camp this morning. Because in Him, in Christ, God has given immeasurable grace to sinners. Immeasurable grace. And that's the the centerpiece of this passage in verse 7 and 8, the last part of 7, the first part of 8. And I'll read the whole thing. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. That's the centerpiece of this passage. That we have been 
lavished upon by God by giving us His grace in Christ. And Paul highlights these immeasurable grace blessings first by saying, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption is a, comes from a Greek word, agorazo, which means to buy in the marketplace. And it comes from an idea of the marketplace where slaves were sold. When we lived in Charlotte, one of, the, one of our getaway places for Maryland and, and for me was uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston is absolutely a beautiful place. And it's got this marketplace right in the center of town. And it is the marketplace, and it's known as the marketplace. And this marketplace was primarily known in the 17 and 18 centuries, 19th centuries, for selling and buying slaves. And in the middle of this marketplace is this one building where you go up to the steps and the steps have a platform. This building has been there for more than 150 years. And it was on that platform where they brought slaves in chains and they bought and sold them. It's a sobering, sobering place. That's the idea that Paul is making here. There was a marketplace where slaves were bought and sold or were just a marketplace of slaves. And he's talking about us. That He's talking that you and I were redeemed out of the marketplace. That we stood on that platform in bondage, chained to a cruel master who was only bent on our destruction. We were in the marketplace. The idea behind redemption is that Jesus purchased us from the marketplace. He bought us with His blood. He purchased us. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. That was the price He paid. The idea behind our salvation is that Jesus redeemed us by purchasing us with His blood and with His death. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God purchased our souls with His blood out of the marketplace. That's what the Greek word agorazo means. But but there's another Greek word here as well in play, and it's the Greek word ex agorazo, which has an even deep and richer meaning about purchasing out of the marketplace. Because the thought is, it is to buy out of the marketplace, once purchased, never able to return again. There's no return policy with Jesus Christ. This is a bad model. It's going back. That's that's what 
That's what election is all about. That's what this wonderful doctrine of being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world is all about. Once chosen, you are not being returned. You are not going back. God has made it permanent in Christ. Blood was shed. James Boyce says this about this section of Ephesians. Jesus purchased us so that we might be taken out of the marketplace and never returned again. In other words, redemption is eternal, irrevocable, never to change. Because blood was shed. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are we redeemed, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, verse 7, but also the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The primary result of redemption for the Christian is forgiveness. Redemption brings something. It brings God's forgiveness. A central truth In both the Old Testament and New Testament, when speaking of salvation, there is forgiveness. The Greek word for for forgiveness is aphemai, which simply means to send away. And the idea is that when you are forgiven, not only have you been purchased and redeemed, but you are forgiven, God sends away your sins. The idea from Psalm 103, God takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He throws them away. Because the blood of Christ has been shed. I grew up in a Jewish family and there was a day every year that as a kid you totally don't understand and you really dislike. It's called Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And on that day, as a Jewish family, you have to do a number of things. You go to the, the synagogue. You spend the, a good portion of the day in the synagogue. You also spend a good portion of the day not eating. You're required to fast on that day. Now, I like buffets and I hated fasting. And <laughs> that Day of Atonement didn't mean a lot to me then. But when I came to Christ and understood the Day of Atonement and what it means. And in that, in that Day of Atonement, two things happened. The, the high priest was given two lambs without blemish. One lamb suffered a brutal and violent death. The high priest, the Levite, would take that lamb, place it on the altar, take a knife and slit its throat. And blood would spill everywhere. Blood was shed everywhere. Atoning work. To represent the atoning work. That lamb stood for what we read now as the shed blood of Christ. But then there was another lamb. And that lamb was taken out as far into the desert in such a way that it could never find its way back. And then the priest would place his hands on the lamb's head as a symbol of placing the sins of the people upon that lamb. We get that term scapegoat 
from that. And then that lamb was sent out to the desert, knowing that that lamb would not return. That's the idea behind forgiveness. That God has taken our sins upon the head of Christ. He has shed the blood of Christ. So that we could be forgiven. That our sins would be as far as the east is from the west. It was a sober and it was a serious day in the life of Israel when that happened. But one thing did not happen. It did not actually remove people's sins. It was not permanent. That's why the Day of Atonement happened every year. It was only a picture of what God promised. A permanent removal of sins through the blood of Christ. Jesus carried away our sins, never to be returned, throwing our sins as far as the east is from the west, so that we are forgiven. Our sins are sent away. That's the idea of forgiveness. Now, we face a battle in this realm. Because when we do sin, there are times when rather than quickly turning back to God, we're tempted to be discouraged and depressed by our sin. And to add to this, we have this adversary who immediately jumps in to accuse us and to condemn us for our sin. He wants us to believe a lie that God holds our sins against us still. And it is not true. It is not true. But it's easy to lose sight of that in the haze of guilt and condemnation. To lose sight of our forgiveness in Christ. It, it just becomes fuzzy to see. And our, our perspective is off. Our, everything is proportionally wrong in that situation. We, we don't see clearly anymore who we are in Christ. Years ago when my son David was, gosh, I think David's probably three years old. He used to have these toys, Fisher Price, Play School, Little People. And they had these little rounded heads and they had a little hole in the bottom. And I remember one night it was, it was probably like five in the morning. And David had this habit of getting up very early in the morning. Um, I'm sure most of your children never do anything like that. My children did. And, and David would come into our bedroom. And one morning I was, I was sound asleep. And I feel this tap on my shoulder. And I, and I opened my eyes. And you know that kind of glaze, like a glazed donut that's over your eyes. And you really can't see clearly. And I kind of just opened one eye. And I look at David. And he's holding his hand out like this. And all I saw was this massive hand. These blown up figures. And I thought, oh my God. He put his hand in a door. What a-? And I'm, Marilyn, wake up. We've got to get David to the hospital. Marilyn's like, calm down, calm down. What do you mean calm down? Look at his hand. And she goes, they're just Fisher-Price children on his hands. <laughs> and that's all they were. Just little Fisher-Price children. And David's like, dad, see? No, I did not see. It was just that moment of panic. And... and And it was because I was just, my perspective was all off. There was a haze. And then then fear and and just a misguided, what am I going to do? And that's the way we can approach forgiveness. We can miss God in the haze of not seeing clearly. John MacArthur describes it this way. 
He says, depressed Christians forget that God looked down upon the corridors of time, even before he fashioned the earth and placed the sins of his elect on the head of his son, who took them an eternal distance away. He dismissed our sins before we were born, and they could never return. Do you get that? You were chosen before the foundation of the world. And at that, you sins, your sins were forgiven at the same time. Before you were born, God dismissed every one of your sins. You were forgiven. Never to return. God's never going to bring your sins back to you again. You'll never be in judgment before God again. If you've put your faith in Christ. If you've not put your faith in Christ, you will stand before the judgment's throne and you will give an account for your sins. And rather than having those sins laid on Christ, they will be laid on you. And you will experience the wrath of God. But if you've come to faith in Christ, never again. Forgiveness is permanent. Now, yes, we do sin. And yes, we do have to ask God's forgiveness. That is 1 John 1, 9. If we sin, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God is not waiting in heaven, ticked off, unforgiving. They are permanent. Forgiveness in Jesus, yes, it is undeserved, but it is free and it is complete. It is complete. I mean, this, that truth, our, our sins were forgiven countless ages, countless ages before we committed them, is mind-boggling. It's as mind-boggling as God having chosen you Countless ages before creation ever occurred, before the fall ever happened, before there was one sin ever committed, God chose you in Him. And God forgives you in Him. And that, that should transform us. That should transform us. Our union with Christ being in Him, in Him, in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to His immeasurable riches. And it's all because of grace. So what is the reason for our praise? Well, one, the reason for our praise is redemption. Jesus shed His blood for us. The reason for our praise is forgiveness. It is permanent. Dismissed forever our sins. There's another thing that, that Paul says is a reason for our praise. And that is in all wisdom and insight. Now, the way that reads in, in an English translation is not quite correct. Because what, it, what it, it's intending to say is that we, not God, not in God's wisdom and insight, but God has given us wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight to understand the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. That, that God has, in His wisdom and insight, allowed us to understand the mystery of His will. According 
to his rich grace. Now, let me explain something about according to his rich grace. God doesn't give us grace. It's not God takes out of his treasury of grace and gives us grace. It's not like if you if you had a million dollars and you gave somebody ten dollars out of your savings, you'd be considered pretty cheap. No doubt. But the concept is that you've taken money out of what you have. With, with this passage and what is trying to be communicated here is that God gives us riches, grace, according to the riches of His grace. In other words, in proportion to His grace. Do you get that? It's in proportion. According to His riches. So if that millionaire, millionaire gave somebody you know, $100,000 according to his riches, according to the amount he has. In other words, God has no end to the riches of his grace. They are immeasurable. And he gives you grace according to that, in proportion to that. That's how much grace God gives you. That's how much grace that has been allotted to us, that has been lavished Upon us, <clears throat> Paul says. And it results in redemption. It results in forgiveness. It re- results in wisdom and insight into the mystery of God's will. How election works. How the Trinity works. When Jesus will return. Those are some mysteries we don't know. But here's a mystery that we do know. God has come to earth through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has saved us in Christ. We are united to Christ. That is the reason for our praise. And then fourthly, the reason for our praise is our inheritance. In verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The blessings we've been given because we are in Christ, God identifies us with His Son. We're, we're with Him. We're united to Him. And the inheritance that God has given Jesus is ours. Do you get that? And God, in His kindness has given everything to us. Every spiritual blessing we read in verse 3. Election, as we've talked about. Adoption, being set apart, being holy, being blameless, being forgiven. All of those are ours. Inheritance, being united to Him, being predestined for an eternal purpose, as we read in verse 11. And then there's the future. Another spiritual blessing, which is in the end of verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things in earth. There's a day when God will unite us all. We live in a world that is fractured. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is in opposition to one another. And and this passage, this promise... This blessing that Paul says that one day, that will all be done. You will all be united to Christ. And then in verse 12, Paul ends so rightly where he began. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Remember at the end of verse 6, he talks about election, being chosen in love, being adopted. At the end of verse 6, he says, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then at the end of what the works of the Son has done, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. It's not just our words that are the praise of God's glory. It's our lives. It's who we are in Christ. God looks at us as those redeemed in His Son. And He gives praise. He gets praise for it. He gets praise for it. What's our application for a passage like this? Other than praising. Other than praising. Which there... That is the primary application, that is the primary purpose of this passage, is that we would end in praising God. But I want to jump off just a bit, because I mentioned this earlier. There is, I believe, a battle for forgiveness. To believe that you are forgiven. Because there are are people in this room, there are people in my life I know, that sometimes they just don't feel forgiven. There's just this, this low-grade sense of condemnation, low-grade sense of guilt, as though God has not forgiven you. Isaiah 44.22 says this, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Listen, when you don't feel forgiven, your tendency will be to distance yourself from God rather than to draw near. And when you distance yourself from God, the result is you have no desire to praise Him. Such simple words in Isaiah, return to me. And how do we return? Well, I I think we return simply by prayer and by praise. And we're going to praise. We're going to finish with a song this morning. If the band would make their way up. We're going to praise. But one of the things I also want to do is I want to pray for people this morning. And so if... if, uh, Larry Wethji and, and, and Larry Earls and, and your wives could come forward. If, if we could pray, if you des- desire prayer, you are battling this, sometimes I don't feel forgiven. You are battling the sense of low-grade condemnation and guilt. You are battling its lack of joy, a sense where I just don't, just don't feel like I can praise God. We want to pray for you today.